Okay, so if you've been with us, you know we're going through a series through the book of Romans, and we're simply calling it uh, Broken and Beloved. And what we mean by that is the two fundamental truths the book of Romans says that are true about you uh, if you are in Christ, there are two things you have to know about yourself if you're ever going to understand yourself, is simply this, that you, though made in God's image, that that image has been broken in you through sin, and that you are actually tonight, every one of us in here, myself included, are far, far worse then you know yourself to be. You are broken. But at the same time, if you are in Christ, that image is being renewed in you in a way where that Jesus took your place both in living the life you never could live and dying the death that you and I deserve to die so that you have a new name now. And your new name is Beloved. Your new name is Precious to God. Your new name is Forgiven. Your new name is a person who's been shown deep, deep mercy. And that's what the entire book of Romans is about, but we're looking passage by passage as we kind of unpack Paul's message, and if you've been with us recently, we've been in what we could simply call the dark, the the Coen Brothers part. Like, if the Coen Brothers were going to make a movie about Romans, it would be the first three chapters. We're coming to the end of that tonight in Romans 3, 1 to 20. And uh, I've said we're we're going to take Taylor Swift as our guide throughout the rest of the semester. One, because who doesn't love Taylor Swift? And then two, who understands the heart like Taylor Swift? And then three, it's just fun, I think. If you don't think so, it's okay. But tonight what we're doing is we're doing, you know, so if we could pick a song from her tonight, it's, it's, I think it was a, a no-brainer. It was an easy one. And it's simply, I knew you were trouble. Paul's point has been so far, Gentiles, those of you who are in the world without God and are proud of it, you are more sinful than you know. Also, religious people, Jews, churchgoers, people with the Bible, you are more sinful than you know. It's not just the Gentile non-believers that need the gospel. You need the gospel way more deeply than you know. And what I think we could say is, is Paul is saying, listen, I know something about you and myself that God knows that maybe you yourself don't know yet. And if somebody does, that you're trouble, that you are trouble. Here's what Taylor says, our our girl, because I knew you were trouble when you walked in. So shame on me now. Flew me to places I'd never been till you put me down. Oh, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. So shame on me now. Flew me to places I'd never been. Now I'm lying on the cold, hard ground. Oh, oh, trouble, trouble, trouble. Oh, oh, trouble, trouble. Trouble. This might be my favorite part each week. It only goes, it only goes downhill from here. Let's we'll just be honest. Um, and let's see what Paul says in our passage. Uh, Romans three. We're gonna read, I'm going to read verses one to twenty. Here's what Paul writes. So he's anticipating some objections. Paul is, he's a brilliant writer, but he's also really an evangelist. He's thinking, what are what are the people I'm writing to thinking? What are the people reading this thinking? So he asks himself a, a series of rhetorical questions. Here's what he says. Starting in verse 1. So uh, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, we could say the means of grace. Uh, God revealing himself through his word and sacraments. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, he starts quoting a ton from the Old Testament, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath in us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? So whenever Paul says what then, pay attention. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And he sums it all up with this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into what I want to talk about. Let's pray first. Father, you have given us your word because you do love us, because you do want us to know you, but also because you want us to know the truth about ourselves. And Father, you alone are the only one who can show us that what you have just said through Paul, your apostle, is true about us. It's not just Paul pontificating. It's not just some, a nice thought, but not for us. That Lord, you've given us your word so that we might know ourselves truly. And Lord, I pray tonight that as we read a dark passage, a hard passage, one that uh, that should expose our hearts for what they are and expose us for who we are, Lord, would you do just that? Lord, you say that you have given us your law, uh, not that we could keep it unto salvation, because we know we are too sinful, we've messed it up too much to do that, but Lord, you've given us your law so that we might know our sin, therefore our need for a Savior. And Lord, would you make that crystal clear to everyone in this room, myself included tonight. We need you to show up and pour out your spirit without measure to do that in us. And Lord, we ask for it uh, in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know about you or what your internet persuasions are, but increasingly mine is, really my Facebook account has been reduced to sharing one of two things, either articles from The Onion or articles from this website, McSweeney's. And McSweeney's is kind of like a lesser version of The Onion in terms of just its scope. But one of my favorite things that McSweeney's has done over the last really five, ten years is they do these monologues. And they're like monologues that are envisioned, they're envisioned uh, characters that are not humans that are like as if they were speaking and saying something ridiculous and funny. So one of them is simply called I Am Comic Sans. And fair warning, they have some lang- a lot of strong language. So if that's not your cup of tea, don't read these. But if you can bear that, they're super funny. So I Am Comic Sans, there's another one called It's Gourd Season. Um, and they're hilarious. But the one that I came across yesterday might be my new favorite. And when I read it, I thought, I've got to share it tonight because I think it fits. And so I'm going to go for it. It's a little bit long. Bear with me. But it's a picture. All it is is a picture of a dog. <laughs> and it's a monologue from a dog. And it's simply called, Who's a Good Boy? And here's how it goes. Who's a good boy? I can tell from the look in your eyes and the tone of your voice that you mean to imply that I am the good boy in question. You're offering me praise and support, and I'm wagging my tail and excitedly patting my feet as if to say, Is it me? I hope it's me. I'm the good boy. Yes, I am. But you should know that it is a charade. Look in my eyes. Really look into my eyes and you'll see the truth. I am not a good boy. Not by any definition. 
hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I am a good boy. Maybe I'm totally mistaken about the nature of good and evil. So sure, call me a good doggy and I won't argue with you. It could be that I just have a guilty conscience and need to get something off my chest. I doubt it, but I suppose it could be true. Whatever the case, I should come clean. Even though you are a human who is only, by my estimate, somewhere between 80 and 107 years old, it's way past time for you to know the truth. You need to know. I don't really have what you would call a moral compass, and I'm not just talking about the poop. You think you know about the poop. You joke with your friends about how much I love to eat poop, that I prefer it to steak, but it's not a joke to me. And let me take a moment to correct you. I don't eat poop. I savor it. (laughs) Mine is fine, but the cat's poop is better. Another dog's poop is also acceptable. I don't discriminate. You think you have cured me of my late night. You think you have cured me of my late night foraging trips into the litter box, but I have only become more stealthy. I do it now more than ever, silently, joyfully, and then you are all too eager to let me lick your face and let me kiss your mouth. It keeps going. Ooh, your doggy breath. You need a mint, you exclaim with joy before giving me the green chewy bone, which you believe will solve the problem of my bad breath. But it won't. Nothing could ever, not considering my preferred diet. But but that's just the beginning. I have done things. Oh, the things I have done. The times I have watched you with your girlfriend, the items around the house I have intentionally marked as mine, and the precious items of yours I have chewed to bits, knowing that I did both of those things, not out of boredom, but by design. The small animals in the yard I have pursued and caught, whose lives I have unceremoniously snuffed out, the joy I felt each time as I did it, the the shame that followed, then the rising desire to do it all over again, the cycle I can never break, that I never want to break, the doors, I have, <laughs> the doors I have scratched to feel the splinters under the pads of my paws just to eff and feel alive. The plans I have made while I watched you sleep. <laughs> Check your browser history. I'll wait. We'll see if you still want to call me a good boy. Or will you maybe want to call the authorities? Or is it possible that you still don't understand what I'm trying to communicate to you? Yeah, that seems to be the case. It doesn't matter how hard I try to come clean, you'll never get the message. There you are, ready to give me some of your breakfast, a piece of buttered toast, the rest of your scrambled eggs, as if I've earned it, as if I deserve it, as if I'm not currently plotting your demise. (laughs) So, okay, sure. I'm a good boy. I'm a very good boy. Yes, I am. And I do want to walk later. A nice hike up in the canyon. In fact, that's perfect. The canyon. Those canyon trails are exactly what I had in mind. Yeah, good boy. Very good boy. With a very good plan. That's it. So, why, why do I love that? Here's why I love that. I love that because I think it's, it's, it's funny. But I think it's saying something funny but also profound. And it's simply this. That I've actually had conversations with some of you. And your story is you've always been the good boy. You've always been the good, moral, you know, church going. Like, the, you're the person in your youth group in your school who people, like, when Jesus comes up, they look to you for the answers. And I've had conversations with some of you where a a funny thing happens. You simultaneously love that, having that reputation, being known as that, and yet you hate that and long and ache to be able to admit what Paul says about you here, that that is true about you, that you are just like everyone else, that every single one of us in this room is simply, at, at, at ground level, a broken sinner 
and you long to be able to just to say that. You long to not be known as the person who has it all together, the, the, good, the good kid, the good moral kid. You long to be able to say the truth about yourself. And that's exactly what Paul invites us to, every one of us here. He invites us to be able to do that tonight. And simultaneously, we, we, we hate it and we love it. We simultaneously are afraid of it, and yet we're drawn to it because we know in our heart of hearts this is, he's talking about us, that this is who we are. We have this ache in us to be able to admit that we're not as good as others think we are. That fundamentally there's something deeply wrong, that we're not as we should be. That when Paul goes on later in Romans 3 to say we've all fallen short, we have a longing in us to be able to say that I am not the person I should be. I am not the brother or the sister that I should have been. I've fallen short of what I should be. I'm not the, the son or the daughter that I should have been. I'm not, uh, I'm not the student that I should have been. I'm not the roommate that I should have been. There's a sense in which we all long to be able to admit the truth about ourselves. And Paul envisions us doing that tonight. And the, the way that he envisions it, it's pretty genius, is he envisions us being in a courtroom. And as we kind of stand in this courtroom, there are a couple things that happen. The first thing we realize in this courtroom as we're standing there with Paul is that the judge is none other than God himself. And the jury, as we kind of look and pan around the room, the jury is none other than all of creation itself from all time. And then we're looking around for the defendant. Who is the defendant? Who is being charged? And as we look at the judge, as we look at the jury, we're looking for the defendant. And if we look down, we realize that we are the defendants. That we are the ones who Paul is bringing the case against, that God is bringing the case against. That we are the ones who evidence of our guilt is being marshaled and brought into court. Overwhelming evidence that we're going to find that we have no way out of, that we, we have nothing to do but to admit the guilt of who we are. And the image that I love, the image that I think sort of controls this passage that's so beautiful, is an image that as the case is being built against us, that we are more sinful than we know, that we are so sinful we can do nothing we just sang to save ourselves, that as the case is being built and as the evidence is being brought in, we can do nothing but literally we have nothing left to say. So the image Paul gives is as if we are holding our hands to our mouth. Now, it's fascinating, as Paul in his day, that was literally what you would do if you were a defendant and you realized that, the, that you were guilty and the evidence was so strong against you that there was no argument left to make, there was nothing new, no new evidence to be brought in to prove your innocence. That's literally what defendants in Paul's day would do. It was a way of saying to the court, yes, I am guilty. I have nothing left to say. And literally defendants would hold their hands to their mouth. As if to say, there's nothing left for me to say about my innocence. And I was just thinking about that, like, we, we can relate to that a little bit. Because think about the last fight that you were in. Maybe it was with a friend, maybe it was with a roommate, maybe it was with a boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe it was with a parent. But think about the last fight you were in. And can you think about the last time you were in a fight where someone, whoever you were fighting with, said something that was so true, that was so kind of convicting, that was so kind of damning against yourself that literally you, you, you stopped talking, you got quiet because there was nothing left to say. This, this happened to me yesterday morning. My wife, my wife had gotten back from taking the kids to school. We get into a little argument that starts about kind of basic parenting things. It escalates. It's one of those small flames that begins to catch fire. We're like, we're, we're going to burn each other. We're just going to burn each other down. And we're doing that. We're setting fire to each other. And then finally my wife said something, said something about something I had done in the past. It was so true that was so convicting that was so damning against me that literally all I did is I laid on the couch as I kind of just laid there got sad almost started crying and that's always when you can really you feel like you really whoever gets to cry first really wins the argument right so I kind of I kind of won in that sense but there was another sense where I was brought to total silence because there was nothing left for me to say there was nothing for me to say to defend myself there was nothing for me to say to prove myself innocent I was completely guilty 
of what she had said that I was. And there's a sense in which that's exactly where Paul wants us to be here. That's exactly what he's doing in this passage. That if you can envision Paul, what he's basically doing is he's, as he sets up this courtroom language, he's basically, this is his closing argument. He's already said, Gentiles, you're more sinful than you know. Jews, you're more sinful than you know. Irreligious people, you're more sinful than you know. Uh, religious people, you're more sinful than you know. I mean, I like to envision Paul as kind of like the, the anti-Oprah where he's like, you're under sin and you're under sin. We're all under sin. That's sort of like what he's doing. And that's his last argument. He's saying we're all under sin. And the question for us becomes, well, what in the world does it mean to be under sin? And I really just want to do one big point tonight and kind of unpack it for a little while together. And it's simply this. When, Paul, when he says that we're under sin, he means something like this. That sin always goes deeper than you think it does and takes you further than you thought it would. Sin always goes deeper than you think it does and it will take you further than you thought that it would. Let's work this out for a second together. So the first thing we've got to do is kind of deconstruct the way that you and I, the way way that we think about and talk about sin. Because typically when I say that word, you, you know, I don't know what you imagine exactly, but I think what you probably think is what I typically think is that sin is a sort of outward list of things that we should not do and things that we should do. There's a sense in which but the, way, the way that we think about it is, is a very clear list of things that we either should be doing or we should not be doing. And when we, don't, and when we do what we shouldn't do, we're sinning. And when we don't do what we should do, we're sinning. And that's typically how we think about sin, that it's something external from us that we occasionally get involved with, maybe we get a little too involved with, but they're sort of outside of us. And we can say there's a sense in which that's true. There's a sense in which, yes, the Bible gives us commandments to say what God loves and what he hates. And there's a sense in which we sin when we break those commandments. Absolutely. But you're never going to fully understand yourself as a sinner unless you understand what Paul is saying here, which is simply this. The sin is not simply a list. Paul would say it's actually a condition that you're born in. When he says under sin, he means that it is so crucial to who you are as a human being that if you don't understand it, you cannot understand yourself. It is such a powerful presence in your life that there will never be a day until you die and go be with Jesus or until he returns and takes you home with him where you will be without this thing the Bible calls sin. It is a condition that we're all born into. Uh, this is the way that I think about it. So my youngest daughter, her name is Sadie. Um, you've, a lot of you have met her. She's four. Um, I, I, I love her. Um, she's a really fun kid. All, I mean, I love all my kids, but Sadie is sort of one of our happiest child. But the thing about Sadie, if you don't know her story, is Sadie, when Alyssa was pregnant with Sadie, we found out pretty early that she has this condition called Dandy Walker Syndrome. Now, what it simply means, for those of you who are maybe nurses, maybe you've heard of it, but what it simply means is that for whatever reason, she, because she has this condition, her cerebellum did not develop like it should have, which therefore, in most cases, it can and doesn't always, but in Sadie's case, it caused, because her cerebellum didn't develop like it should have, it caused some excess fluid in the brain, some swelling in the brain. So when we found out about it, we were very concerned because we didn't, they couldn't tell us what it meant. They couldn't tell us if she was going to be born and be normal or if she was going to be born and, like, die a few days after she's born. Dandy Walker, you have radically extremes in uh, almost every case. Praise God, she's on the case where she's like the healthiest, best case scenario, where if you met her, you would never know that she has this syndrome called, this condition called Dandy Walker. But the reality is when she was born, about three or four weeks after she was born, because of the the swelling in her brain, the doctors had to come in and put a shunt in that essentially drains the excess fluid from the top of her brain down into her abdominal cavity. So if you were to feel Sadie's brain, She's got this shunt 
And if you were to look in her stomach, she's got this little incision. And the reality is because she has this condition called Dandy Walker, she will have this shunt with her in her the rest of her life. And it's praise God. I mean, praise God for modern medicine. There's a lot we could say, but that's not the point. The point that I'm trying to make is Sadie will never live a day without Dandy Walker. She has this condition. It's a rare condition. Paul is saying something similar, but he's saying something more radical. He's saying sin is a condition that you and I are born into, and it's not rare. That every single one of us in this room, every single one of us on this campus, every single one of us in the city of Columbia, every single one of us in the state of South Carolina, every single one of us in the United States, every single one of us on this continent, every single one of us, every single person born in the entire world is born with this condition. And there's a sense in which we, if we don't grasp that, we can't grasp ourselves. And here's the thing that Paul is trying to get across is that it affects everything. So if you were to look down, like in that 16 to 20, those verses, he starts naming, like, what it affects. And, like, if you just look at the list, it, it affects huge things. It affects, first, our standing with God. But then he says it affects our minds, the way that we think, the way that we understand things. It affects our motivations, for even the good things that we do, that we, there's always this mixed motivation where we're doing it really selfishly for ourselves. It affects the way we relate to each other, where not only do we use our words and tongues to, like, to you know, gossip about each other, to, to tear each other down in subtle ways and in big ways. This is, the, this is why, like, you know, when I was growing up, I had this pastor who would say, you don't believe you're a sinner? Take this thing called the tongue test. Just literally for the, until the next RUF. Watch the way that you use your mouth. Watch the way that you use your tongue. Every time you catch yourself saying something, like making yourself look a little better, embellishing a story, every time you catch yourself tearing someone down just a little bit, every time you catch yourself saying something in anger, every time you catch yourself gossiping in the name of of, of concern, that's our favorite one, I think, every time you catch yourself using your mouth in a way to curse others and yet bless God, you come here and you sing, that's what James says, you come here and you sing your songs but in your, but you use that same tongue. I used that same tongue yesterday morning to say things to my wife that if, if they had been recorded and I were to play it now, it would be both awful for me and great for me because you could see the truth about who I am, that I am nothing more than a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus, and I still sin daily, and I'm called to repent daily. And the same is true about you. But there's a sense in which he's painting this picture, Paul is, of humanity in our depravity. This is where, for my people who are into theology, this is where we get this idea that we call total depravity. Now, what do we, what do we mean by that? First, what do we not mean? What Paul isn't saying is he's not saying that every one of us in this room is as, pot, is as sinful as we possibly could be. That, that all that, you know, thank God for his preserving, gracious providence where we don't act on every impulse. We don't act on every sinful thought. We don't do every sinful thing that comes into our mind, and our society doesn't either. But what he is saying is that you are totally affected by sin. The way you think is affected by sin. What you want and desire is affected by sin. What you do is affected by sin. What you don't do is affected by sin. There is not a single person nor a single part of any person that is not deeply, powerfully affected by this thing the Bible calls Sin, And the reality is, I think we as a culture still believe in it. That even if we've rejected the gospel, there's a part of us that still deeply believes in sin. This is where it came, came home for me this, this weekend. So we went in this fall retreat this weekend, and we were near the Asheville area. Asheville, if you've ever been, it's one of my favorite cities in the southeast. It's just a fun city, a lot of great culture. It just feels like not the south in a refreshing way. 
Part of that is because the downtown area, especially, is not very. It's one of the most dechurched areas in, in the, all the southeast. There's just not much religious presence, which is actually, I think, can be a really good thing. But it also means it's there's it's really really hard. I have a friend who's planning a church there, and it's been really really hard to just preach the gospel because there's a sense in which the city's like, no thanks, every man for himself. We don't want that. Well, interestingly, what happened over the weekend was is these guys part of this espresso, one of the most famous espresso places in Nashville called Waking Life. It basically came out that the two owners, these young, successful guys, that they anonymously for the last, I think, couple of years had been tweeting, blogging, and doing a podcast anonymously about their sexual escapades and adventures. And and with sharing, like, shameful, specific details, but in the language of, we have conquered these women, here's how we conquered these women sexually, and here's how you can do it to you. And you can imagine, as the, as the city found out that these guys said these, I mean, these guys, there was no way for them to deny it. Like, the, the Twitter was up, you know, the blog was up, the podcast was up. It was clear that it was these guys talking, and it was clear they were talking about tons and tons and tons of specific women who'd come into waking life, and they'd had these encounters with, these conquests with. But what's fascinating to me is literally, there, you know, if you've, if you've followed it at all, it's fascinating. There have been these silent protests. I mean, the community is outraged to the point where they're saying, you not you are destroying and demeaning women, but also you are, therefore you are destroying and demeaning our community, and also you're promoting rape culture, and we're not going to have it. And so they're doing these protests, these silent protests. But they all the grocery stores in town pulled all of Waking Life's products from their shelves. Waking Life was about to open a second location downtown. It really, it literally looks like maybe even today that they were had to, the business just had to close its doors. And all of this, despite the owners had both come out and publicly, pretty deeply, apologized and repented. But why am I so fascinated by it? Two reasons. One, we still believe in sin. Like, we still believe that you and I can fall short of what we should be. That we can deeply hurt, dehumanize, and destroy each other in very real ways that we should, be, that we should call out, that we should stand against. But the second thing that's intriguing to me that I keep thinking about is how are the Christians in the city going to respond? This is the thought that I can't kind of shake. In my, my, my longing and my hope, and I ask myself the same question, if I knew these guys, how would I respond? I, I hope I would no, in no way pretend like what they did wasn't absolutely evil, wicked, awful. Something that deserves deep, lasting consequences. But I wonder if I would know my own heart, and I wonder if the Christians in the city will know their own hearts to know that, that at heart, they are the same. That at heart, given the right circumstances and the right temptations, they would have done the same things. This is why I love this time of year, because I love walking the horseshoe and being under the oak trees and see the little acorns. And when I see those little acorns, you can think in this acorn is essentially these huge hundreds of year old oak trees. And there's a sense in which I love, Robert Murray McShane has this illustration where he says, when you look at that acorn, that a Christian should be able to look into his heart and say, in my heart is the seed of every sin. Given the right circumstances, given the right temptations, oaks of awful, dehumanizing, destroying things can grow easily up in my life. I, the, at, at, the Romans 3, what Romans 3 says about me is true, and it's true, if it's true of every one of us, it's also true about me. Um, and I think this is one of the ways, and this seems a little counterintuitive, you saw it last week, if you were here, that one of the ways that you know you're growing in grace, listen to me, one of the ways that you know you're growing in grace 
is you're not only able to repent of the bad things that you've been doing, but you're also able to repent of the bad reasons, the selfish motivations of the good things you've been doing. You're not only able to say about yourself that I am a sinner as equal to any sinner in the room, but there's another then in a sense that you could say I'm the worst sinner that I know because only you have access to the, the sinful thoughts and the sinful motivations that drive you. I don't have access to that in you, but I have access to that in myself. And so there's a sense in which I'm the worst sinner that I know. But there's another deep sense in which uh, that you begin to repent of the bad and selfish motivations for the reasons you do good things. And so here are just a few of them. It means you repent of opening your Bible so you can Instagram your quiet time. It means you repent of inviting your friends to RUF, not because you love them and want them to know Jesus, but because you want to be seen as a good leader. It means that you repent of um, not getting drunk, not because you love Jesus, but because you want to have something to hold over your peers as a better person. It means that you repent of getting deeply involved in a ministry and doing ministry in the name of getting other people to like you and accept you rather than doing it in a way that loves them from a place of fullness because you already have all the approval and acceptance you need in Christ. It means that you repent of the ways you've been working and growing on your holiness because what you really, really need is for God to bless your life and your plans for your life. And instead you can say, I trust my life to you. Take me wherever you want me to go. Because I know that wherever I go, you're with me. And if I have you, you're enough for me. There's a sense in which sin is not breaking this list of rules, but it's this condition that we live in that affects everything that we do. And so there's a sense in which at the end of it, we with the person Paul is talking to, all we have left to do when we think about ourselves and we think about our lives is to put our hands to our mouth and say, guilty. Then I'm guilty. And what I love is... When I think about that image, I think about another courtroom. I think about another scene that happened just a few years before Paul writes this letter. And I think about, just, as you look at this courtroom, here's some, you look at the judges, there are multiple judges. It's the chief priests and the chief elders of Jerusalem. And as you look at who's, who is uh, the, the prosecutor who is moderating the thing, there's Pilate. They're gathered in a room at Pilate's house. And who is the defendant? Who's on trial? And it's Jesus. And here's what Matthew says that happens. He says this. He said, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And what I love about this scene is here's Jesus. Just imagine it for a second. And here are these religious men. And they've got all these charges, these rapid-fire charges against Jesus. And none of the charges are true. All the charges are trumped up. The charges are false. And here's Jesus. And what, Pilate, what Matthew says, that what Pilate was so impressed by Jesus is what Jesus, as these accusations came, he could have easily said no. Like, he could have easily defended himself. He could have easily said, not true. What you just said, let me tell you why that's not true. What you just said, let me tell you why that's not true. And he could have defended himself, and yet what Pilate says, what Matthew says, is that Jesus did not answer by even a single charge. And that Jesus, if we could say it this way, puts his hand to his mouth. You know what? If you're ever going to have your heart transformed, if you're ever going to be the kind of person that actually does love God, not, because, not for what he can give you, but because you love him, if you're ever going to be the kind of person who wants to follow Jesus and not convince him to give you your plan for your life, but to say, Jesus, you are my life. You're going to have to see this. 
that Jesus in that moment, the innocent one, puts his hand to his mouth as, as, as if he were the guilty one. And it's as if he's saying, Father, treat me as they deserve to be treated. Treat me, the innocent one, as my guilty friends, myself, yourself included, deserve to be treated. Let me close my mouth in judgment that my friends might open their mouths in praise because they've experienced this grace that says you're, you're not treated as your sins deserve because Jesus said, treat me, Father, as their, as their sins deserve. And so you and I get mercy and grace. Um, I'll close with this. I, you know, so how does this begin to change you? Like when you begin to think about that this is true, that, that we are the ones who, if we're in the courtroom, the evidence is so strong against us, we are guilty. And yet Jesus comes and he's before Pilate. He's before these men and he says, treat me as they deserve. How does it begin to change you? And there's just simply one thing I want to say. You quit being so dang defensive. Quit being so defensive. I love the story out of Charles Spurgeon's life. I'll close with this. He's coming out of church. Spurgeon's a great preacher in the 1800s in London. He's coming out of church one day. He's standing with his, 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 some of his friends and leaders, a gathered crowd, and this angry woman walks up to him, and here's what she says. She says, Mr. Spurgeon, you are the most arrogant, obnoxious, annoying man that I've ever heard of, and I wanted to be the one to tell you so. And the crowd kind of grew quiet and embarrassed. They looked at Spurgeon to see what he would say, and he turned to his elder, one of his elders, and simply said, she doesn't know the half of it. And here's what Spurgeon went on to write later. I'll close with it. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might, try, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted, and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches, and it would be still near the truth. Let's pray. Jesus, would you work in us in ways where we can admit with you the truth um, that we are more sinful than we know, and that, yeah, Lord, you move to us. That though we deserve, we have been faithless, you have been faithful. Though we have shown ourselves to be liars, you have been true. Not only have you been true um, in your judgment of us, but you've also been true as the Savior, the one who came and lived and died for us. And so, Lord, would you draw us near even now to yourself, that we might worship that we might uh, be in all of your grace. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Ten decisions shape your life. You'll be aware of five above. Seven ways to go to school. Either you noticed or left out. Seven ways to get I can see me in your eyes You said I can see you in my pet That's not just friendship, that's romance too You like music we can dance to Sit me down Shut me